Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to Freedom of Species. Freedom of Species is a radio program dedicated to raising awareness about issues concerning animals. Recent podcasts, audio on demand and live streaming are available from the 3CR website. All podcasts are available from the Freedom of Species website and you can subscribe to the program via iTunes. I'm Kate Elliott. Coming up in the next hour, we will be broadcasting a presentation that Bruce Frederick delivered at the recent Animal Activist Forum held in Melbourne in mid-October. Bruce Frederick is the Executive Director of the Good Food Institute. By assisting the most promising plant-based and cultured meat alternatives and companies, the Good Food Institute is creating a healthy, humane and sustainable food supply. Bruce has previously served as the Director of Policy and Advocacy at Farm Sanctuary, and as Vice President for Campaigns at PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. He has also worked as a public school teacher in inner-city Baltimore through Teach for America, where he was awarded Teacher of the Year. He has been a progressive activist for more than 25 years. In a moment, we'll hear his Skype presentation titled Veganism in a Nutshell, The Health, Environmental, Human Rights animal rights and animal protection arguments for veganism. 3CR, radio that's independent, progressive and making a difference. So the title of my presentation is Veganism in a Nutshell. And basically I'm going to be talking about the reasons for adopting a vegan diet, all of which boil down to the adage of Socrates from 2,500 years ago when he said that the unexamined life is not worth living. Uh, For most of us, I can't, uh, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to see whether people are raising their hands, but is, is anybody in the audience, was anybody in the audience raised vegan from birth? If you were raised vegan from birth, raise your hand. Yeah, it's, it's pretty rare. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty rare. It's getting slightly less rare over time. When I adopted a vegan diet in the, the mid-1980s, um, you know, people were still looking at me as a vegan. Like I was saying, I was from the planet Vega or something. But um, more and more people are, are being raised vegan. But it's, it's, still, uh, it's still uncommon. Um, and the reason for that is that most of us are not challenged to think about where our food comes from. And once we start thinking about it, once we start examining our lives and examining our dietary choices, it becomes clear that if we want to align our ethics with our actions, if we want to lead examined lives, there are at least three ways in which a vegan diet is an ethical imperative. If we care about the environment, if we care about the global poor, or if we care about animals, for any of these three reasons, 
if we examine our lives and examine the impact of our dietary choices on the environment or the global poor or animals, the only ethically acceptable diet is a vegan one. And once we do align our ethics with our actions, whether it's for any of these three, three reasons, all of these three reasons, or some combination of them, we find that our health is very likely to improve as well. So I'm going to talk about my trajectory um, adopt, adopting a vegan diet back in 1987. I went to a small liberal arts college in the center of the United States, um, a state called Iowa, which is the number one egg producing and the number one um, pig killing state in the United States, went to a small liberal arts school. And I considered myself quite the environmentalist uh, back in 1987, which I grew up in Oklahoma, which is, uh, I think, the number two cattle state in the country. So to be an environmentalist in Oklahoma in, in 1987, I'm not sure what that required, but it didn't require much. And, uh, and I showed up and I considered myself an environmentalist. Um, and what I learned pretty quickly is that the way animal products are made is vastly inefficient and that one really can't be an environmentalist while continuing to consume animal products. And this just makes intuitive sense. I weigh about 185 pounds if I do nothing but lay in bed watching bad TV, I'm going to burn roughly 2,000 calories a day. If I get excited about what's going on on the screen and I start screaming at the television, uh, my caloric expenditure is going to tick up at least slightly. Um, and that sort of physiological relationship is true for farm animals as well. Uh, not that they lay in bed watching bad TV, but that the vast majority of the calories that you feed to a chicken or a pig or a cow, the vast majority of the calories that you feed to them, they're going to expend simply existing. And what we find is, what the scientists find is, that it takes at least nine calories into a farm animal to get one calorie back out in the form of the animal's flesh, in the form of chicken or pork or whatever else, um, it takes six to eight calories into an animal to get one calorie back out in the form of eggs or in the form of dairy. So would anybody in the room go to your refrigerator, open it up, and take out nine plates of pasta and dump them in the trash? Would anybody ever think that's you know an acceptable thing to do? No, of course not. It would be vastly wasteful. And yet that's the relationship we enter into every single time we choose to eat meat or six to eight calories if we're choosing to eat dairy or we're choosing to eat eggs. We're not personally throwing that food in the trash, um, but we're entering into a relationship wherein that much food was wasted. It was fed to animals. It was burned up by the animals simply existing um, when it could have been used to grow food for human beings. So an environmental researcher looked at these basic relationships, and he determined that to get a calorie from animals takes about 20 times the fossil fuels, 14 times the water, and 25 times the land. And the reason for that is that it's not just the calories in, calories out equation. It's also all the extra stages of production. So a vegan diet is not perfect. A vegan diet is not resource neutral, 
Like if you're going to grow wheat or corn or soy or whatever else to feed it to vegans, you still have to grow the crops, and that takes a lot of energy. You have to ship those crops um, to a manufacturing plant to turn them into you know, bread or whatever vegan cereal or whatever vegan food we're going to eat. Then you have to ship those, you know, that to the grocery store. But to create animal-based foods, you still have to grow the crops, right? Except now you're shipping the crops to a feed mill. And instead of turning them into vegan food, you're turning them into animal feed. And then you're shipping that feed to the factory farm. And you have to operate the factory farm. And then you're shipping the animals to the slaughterhouse. And you have to operate the slaughterhouse. So it's multiple extra stages of gas-guzzling, pollution-spewing lorries. It's multiple extra resource-intensive and pollution-spewing factories that go into creating animal-based foods as opposed to vegan foods. The United Nations released this uh, Livestock's Long Shadow. It's more, a more than 400-page ecological indictment of the meat industry. And in Livestock's Long Shadow, these United Nations um, ecological scientists determined that raising animals for food, it's first one of the most significant contributors to the most serious environmental problems at every scale from local to global. It is also it, um, raising animals for food contributes to problems of land degradation, climate change and air pollution, water shortage and water pollution, and loss of biodiversity. And on the biggest of the environmental concerns these days, global warming, they determined that raising animals for food causes 40% more global warming than all SUVs, 18-wheelers, jumbo jets, all forms of travel are responsible for about 13% of global warming, whereas raising animals for food is responsible for about 18%, so 40% more global warming than all forms of transportation combined. On a calorie-by-calorie basis, the most efficient animal-based foods are still um, create 25 on a calorie by calorie basis can take can create 25 times the greenhouse gas gases of wheat or soy and if you do it on a protein comparison it's 40 times so to get a calorie of protein from animal foods from the most efficient animal foods requires 40 times as many calories in plant-based foods the foods fed to the animals, um, obviously vastly more efficient to eat plants directly. Um, one of the two largest environmental groups in the United States, the Environmental Defense Fund, pointed out that if every American skipped one meal of chicken per week, the carbon dioxide savings would be the same as taking more than half a million cars off of U.S. roads. So back in 1987, I read a book that made these, this environmental point. It's called Diet for a Small Planet. And in Diet for a Small Planet, Francis Moore LePay basically laid out the case that, that I just laid out, that it is vastly inefficient to cycle crops through animals. And anybody who would not throw away vast quantities of food shouldn't enter into a relationship wherein they are paying other people to waste vast quantities of food so that we can consume something so inefficient as animal products. So uh, for anybody who cares about the planet, even absent all of the other concerns that we're about to talk about, 
if you care about environmentalism, if you want to decrease your global warming footprint, uh, the only reasonable diet, the only ethical diet is a vegan one. But um, unfortunately, there are uh, multiple other ethical imperatives around the idea of eating a vegan diet. Uh, LePay in Diet for a Small Planet connects the dots and points out what is probably obvious to all of us, and that is that if you're eating something so vastly inefficient as as animal products, um, what is likely to happen is that you're going to create this, as Oxfam puts it, competition for grain between affluent meat eaters and the world's poor. This guy um, was the global envoy for food to the United Nations, and a number of years ago, the Food and Agricultural Organization of the United Nations um, released a report about the inefficiency of biofuels. And he called it a crime against humanity that 100 million metric tons of grain and corn was going into, was, was being turned into biofuels. He called it a crime against humanity. Um, and the reason for that is that if 100 million metric tons of corn and grain is being, is going to biofuels, that means that the price of corn and grain and the value of the land that's used to grow that corn and and grain, it makes food more expensive for the global poor. So right now, according to the United Nations, there are about 800 million people on the planet who are living in what the United Nations calls nutritional deficit. Nutritional deficit. It's a euphemism. They're starving. And about 40 million people every year die from starvation-related causes. So what do you think? Um, do you agree with the UN Special Envoy on Food that while people are starving, it is a crime against humanity to take 100 million metric tons of corn and wheat um, and turn them into fuel instead of using them to feed people? Um, what do you think? Raise your hand if you think that's a crime against humanity. Yeah, pretty much everybody does. And I agree. I think you can make a very strong point. And this is from the exact same Food and Agricultural Organization report um, that Ziegler used to call biofuels a crime against humanity. And as you will see, 756 million metric tons of corn and wheat were fed to farm animals in the exact same year. So 7.56% as much corn and wheat was fed to farm animals. And um, the vast majority, over 90%, of the soy crop, none of which went into biofuels, 220 million metric tons of soy was also fed to farm animals. So basically 10 times as many resources went to feed farm animals as went into biofuels, which uh, you know I think Ziegler rightly called a crime against humanity. But then what does that make this vast inefficiency of growing grain and corn and soy and feeding them to farm animals instead of using that land to grow crops, to feed to the global poor. Not Oxfam, as I said uh, two minutes ago, but World Watch Institute actually released this report. It said meat production is an inefficient use of grain. The grain is used more efficiently when consumed directly by humans. Continued growth in meat output is dependent on feeding grain to animals, creating competition for grain between affluent meat eaters and the world's poor. So, you know, there are certainly socio-political and socio-economic issues Um, with regard to resource distribution, but it is nevertheless true, especially in our our global economy, that each time we choose to eat something so inefficient as animal products, 
we are entering into this economic relationship which drives up the price of cereals and literally leads to people starving, which is why the UN Special Envoy on Food called this sort of relationship in the biofuels context, but it's exactly the same in the meat context. He called it a crime against humanity. Um, If you want to do your part to fight global poverty, uh, the best diet is a vegan one. And that that is the second, um, I think, unequivocal and independent um, ethical imperative pointing toward a vegan diet. Uh, And those are the two things that did it for me. Um, I had been a vegan for a number of years on the basis of environmental concerns and global poverty concerns, Um, When I came across uh, the precursor to this book, um, this is by an Anglican priest and uh, professor of theology at Oxford University named Andrew Lindsay. The first version of this was called Christianity and Animal Rights, but he he updated it. I think this is from uh, maybe 1996, and uh, it's called Animal Theology, and it's it's a lot more powerful, um, a lot more research in it. Um, And Lindsay argues, so... um, After college, I went and I ran a homeless shelter and a soup kitchen in inner city Washington, D.C. for about six years. And I had been there for a while when somebody gave me another vegan and gave me this book to read. And and I found um, Lindsay's argument extraordinarily convincing. And he puts it in a theological context. But it's really, I think, for people of of any religion or no religion, um, it's about the nature of what it means to be a good human being. And I mean, Lindsay writes an entire sort of historical exegesis on this topic, but what it distills to, I think, is good people. If you can make a choice that is kind or a choice that is cruel, good people, every single time they go with kind. If you can make a choice that adds to the level of misery in the world or the level of mercy in the world, Every single time, ethical people go with mercy. And Lindsay suggests, rightly, that every single time we sit down to eat, that's the decision we make. We're making a decision about who we are in the world. Um, Do we want to make choices that are kind, merciful, or do we want to make choices that add to the level of cruelty and misery in the world? And uh, so I grappled with that for a while, and, um, and eventually that led me to, to dedicate my life to animal protection. So the argument put in another context um, is that other animals are individuals, just like human beings are individuals. Um, other animals are physiologically, they're made of the exact same stuff that we are, flesh and blood and bone, um, as Charles Darwin taught us. Other animals are more like us than they are unlike us. Differences between human beings and other animals, they're differences of degree. They are not differences of kind. Um, Or as Richard Dawkins, um, who's probably the foremost living evolutionary biologist, he calls other species our evolutionary cousins. And he denounces what he calls speciesist arrogance, this idea that human beings are the center of the moral universe or that we are the pinnacle of creation. Um, We are neither the center of the moral universe nor the pinnacle of creation. Um, Other animals are more like us than they're unlike us. They feel pain in the same way and to the same degree. They also uh, lead complex and rich um, emotional, behavioral, and cognitive lives. 
You're tuned to 3CR's Animal Advocacy Program, Freedom of Species, partway through a presentation by Bruce Frederick, the Executive Director of the Good Food Institute. The Skype presentation was delivered at the recent Animal Activist Forum in Melbourne. Bruce has previously served as a Director of Policy and Advocacy at Farm Sanctuary. Farm Sanctuary is an American animal protection organisation founded in 1986 to advocate for farm animals. It was America's first sanctuary for farm animals. So this book, The Inner World of, of Farm Animals, distills an awful lot of the research that exists on who farm animals are. And primatologist Dr. Jane Goodall wrote the introduction to this book. And in her introduction to the book, she points out that farm animals feel pleasure and pain. They feel sadness, uh, excitement, resentment, depression, fear, and pain. They are far more aware and intelligent than we ever imagined. They are individuals in their own right. Um, at Farm Sanctuary, I launched a campaign called Someone, Not Something. And if you go to farmsanctuary.org in the education section, um, you will see there on the left-hand side, it says someone, not something, cattle, sheep and goats, pigs, chickens, fish, um, and then about the someone, not something project. We have distilled um, a lot of the most recent science of farm animal emotion, cognition, and behavior. And one of the things that we learned, uh, or one of the things that scientists learned, is that on these ethological tests, ethology is just the study of cognition, emotion, and behavior, on these ethological tests, it turns out that chickens and pigs are more complex than dogs and cats, which is to say chickens and pigs are more behaviorally and cognitively sophisticated than dogs and cats. My wife insists that the cats are just refusing to participate in the tests, that uh, the cats could destroy the, uh, the dogs and the pigs and the chickens if they wanted to. Uh, but the dogs are trying, I mean, but the dogs are trying. And uh, the, the research indicates, it's just one example, uh, chickens know that a hidden object still exists. That's something that, that human beings get at about the age of two. Chickens have the capacity to delay gratification, which is to say they can learn that if they deny a food reward now, they will get more food later. Um, and when scientists did that work with chickens, chickens were the first non-primates to have been discovered um, to have that capacity. And we talk about all of that um, on the Someone Not Something webpage for people who are, more, who are interested in that. Intuition um, also tells us that uh, chickens and pigs are individuals, just like dogs and cats. Uh, most people don't know chickens and pigs quite as well as they know dogs and cats. But this is a slide that I, I put up without the, the phrase and intuition at the top of it. Um, one thing that I do uh, fairly regularly is go to university campuses in the United States, um, and we challenge the debate team on the topic, is eating meat ethical? Um, so I will debate uh, members of the members of the debate team um, on that question, and this is one of the slides that I put up. And I will say to the audience, um, who here would be willing to eat that cat in the upper left hand corner, or that dog in the upper right hand corner? And pretty much, I mean, even in a room full of meat eaters, nobody is willing to say, "Yeah, I'm going to dig into the cat, or I'm going to dig into the dog. I'm going to eat their carcass." Um, and yet nobody can come up with anything approximating a plausible explanation for how 
it makes rational or ethical sense to eat the chicken in the upper right-hand corner, Beaky is her name, uh, but not the cat in the upper left-hand left hand corner. Uh, Rena is her name. Um, she's running around here somewhere. She's actually asleep right over there. And uh, nobody can come up with anything approximating a plausible explanation for why it's acceptable um, to eat someone like Fiona, the pig in the lower left-hand corner, but not acceptable to eat the dog, Chompers, in the lower right-hand corner. And our, our intuition tells us with regard to some animals that it's not acceptable to eat them. And if you have conversations with people, including people who routinely eat meat, um, about why they eat some animals but not other animals, there isn't anything, uh, they can't come up with anything approximating a reasonable explanation for that. Um, uh, unfortunate, I mean, all of that is the straight sort of animal rights argument for adopting a vegan diet from an animal perspective, just the simple fact that no matter how well a dog or a cat was treated, uh, the vast majority of people would not eat them. Similarly, no matter how well a chicken or a pig is treated, they are individuals with interests and we shouldn't be eating them. Um, unfortunately, we have a much stronger argument from an animal, pers animal perspective for not eating animals, and that is that they are treated abysmally. So um, eating animals entails really choosing egregious abuse when you could be choosing to eat plant foods. So I'm not going to sort of go animal by animal and, and chronicle all of the abuse, uh, but I would like to discuss at least some of it. And this slide um, is what a modern broiler house looks like. So you have anywhere from 20,000 to 50,000 hens, I'm sorry, 20,000 to 50,000 chickens in one of these sheds. Each chicken has about nine by nine inches for their entire life. Um, I can't on this screen do a chicken's wingspan, but a chicken's wingspan is about 30 to 32 inches, which is you know bigger than the, the screen is allowing me to show. And it really is a carpet of chickens. And the animals are treated um, absolutely abysmally. Modern genetics, and this applies throughout the developed world, modern genetics is such that the modern broiler chicken now grows her upper body about seven times as quickly as she would naturally. Poultry scientists at the University of Arkansas a couple of years back came up with a, a pretty stunning um, comparison. They said that if a human baby grew as quickly as a modern broiler chicken, she would weigh more than 600 pounds by the time she was two months old. So imagine a human baby weighing 600 pounds by the time she's two months old. She would be in chronic pain. And that's true for broiler chickens as well. Their upper bodies grow so quickly, but their hearts and their lungs and their limbs can't keep up. And they suffer from 1% death losses every single week. None of us in this room would you know, do this to a chicken. But anytime anybody chooses to eat chicken, they're entering into this relationship where they, wherein they are paying people to gratuitously abuse animals. One more slide. Um, so this is Beaky. Uh, Beaky is a resident at Farm Sanctuary, and she is an individual. One of the cool things about Beaky, she, so chickens and pigs and other farm animals um, have individual personalities, just like dogs and cats. Um, Beaky is, uh, is Little Miss Social Lady. She, if you visit Farm Sanctuary, she will follow you around. And as Susie Costin gives the tours at Farm Sanctuary, 
you know, she follows Susie around and she will jump up into your lap. And if Susie sings, she'll sort of, um, she'll sort of sing along. And all of the animals are individuals, just like um, the animals who all of us know a little bit are individuals. Next slide. And yet this is how animal agriculture treats um, laying hens. So laying hens um, are kept, most of them, in battery cages. The battery cages are an industry average of about 18 by 20 inches. Um, and the industry average in Australia and in the United States is, is that the white hens have about 67 square inches per bird. The brown hens have about 76 square inches per bird. In an 18 by 20 inch wire mesh cage, that works out to five hens in a cage. So not one hen could spread even one wing in one of these cages. And yet they cram an industry average of five hens into the cages for usually about 20 to 24 months. By the time the animals are taken out of the cages, their bodies are so depleted of calcium um, and so um, atrophied from being immobile for almost two years that in controlled conditions, which is to say <clears throat> where the scientists um, are there and the people who are pulling the hens out of the cages know that this is going to be measured, in those sorts of conditions, um, a third of the animals suffer new bone breaks. And the reason for that, in addition to the fact that the animals haven't moved for almost two years, is that egg-laying hens are now laying about 280 percent, you know, 270, and it's actually gone up a couple since 2011. They're now laying more than 270 eggs in a year. Um, their bodies are just completely trashed. And every single one of these animals is an individual, just like Tilly, um, who lives at Farm Sanctuary. So a lot of people don't think about the cruelty of, of the egg industry, the dairy industry, and the fish industry. So those are the, the three that I'm going to focus on. This is a dairy cow. As you can see, her udder is uh, absolutely massive. In the United States, the statistics on dairy production are that dairy cows now give about 10 times as much milk as their babies would naturally suckle. You know, imagine a human mother giving 10 times as much milk um, as her babies would naturally suckle. The animals are in chronic pain throughout their entire lives. And the entirety of the downer cow issue. So animals, you know, it's, it's much like the egg laying issue. The animals are completely spent. Um, their bodies are depleted of resources. And consequently, just like laying hens, about a third of them will suffer new bone breaks during depopulation in, you know, the best of depopulation. Um, similarly, a huge number of dairy cows go down because their bodies have been so thoroughly depleted of calcium as they're being shipped to slaughter, um, oftentimes they will become crippled on the trip to, to slaughter. And the other thing just to say about the dairy industry, which uh, is surprising to a lot of people, although probably none of you, is that uh, the male babies of the dairy industry are basically a different genetic strain of animal. And consequently, they are not raised for beef. They're not raised for steak. Um, oftentimes they end up uh, being turned into veal. They end up, you know, slaughtered as babies for human food. Every single dairy cow, every single calf is an individual, just like Fanny. Um, one of the things you'll learn if you go to the Someone Not Something page of the uh, Farm Sanctuary website is that cows um, are extremely social animals. They're pack animals, just like dogs are pack animals. 
And also that when they solve problems, they literally jump up and down for excitement when they please the researchers um, solving problems. The researchers at the University of Bristol in the UK, they called it their eureka moment. They said cows have eureka moments. And you can read about um, that on the someone not something page. Um, This is a commercial fishing net. Um, Oftentimes you'll hear somebody say, you know, I'm a vegetarian, except that I eat fish. Um, or they'll say I'm a pescatarian or whatever. Um, oftentimes people don't empathize with fish quite as much as they empathize with other animals. Uh, but it is the case that, that fish are individuals, just like dogs and cats and chickens and pigs and cows are individuals. And this is what commercial fishing looks like. I don't know what, how the resolution is on, on that slide in front of you, but um, through that netting, those are all mouths, those things that maybe look a little indistinguishable. Those are all the mouths of the animals who are suffocating in this net. Um, and, you know, you can imagine that the animals deeper in have already suffocated and died. So these fishing nets, oftentimes, um, you know, many, many um, hundreds of yards long, dragged along or hundreds of meters long, dragged along the bottom of the ocean and they just sweep up everything in their path and then they drag them onto the fish deck um, and then they release the, the uh, you know, they release the sort of hold on them. They slice the animals in half while they're still completely conscious and then toss them on ice. And if you want to see what, the, what a lot of that looks like, uh, there's a video called What Came Before um, online. It's just What Came Before. Dot com, and it's sort of uh, a video version, a much briefer version of this presentation, and in, in video fo- in video form, and you can uh, you can see some of what's happening. Um, and that's what aquaculture looks like. So fish farming is becoming more and more um, popular, and it's extraordinary. It's really quite something to see a modern fish farm. It looks sort of like a uh, a massive tub of writhing spam. And, uh, and the amount, the, the animals would all die, except they're all drugged up. So they, they are swimming in antibiotics. They're swimming in their own excrement. Um, and the death losses would be astronomical, if not for all of the drugs that they were swimming in that keep them alive in conditions that would otherwise kill them. Sylvia Earle, who is the foremost living uh, marine biologist, she'd probably be as famous as Jacques Cousteau if she were male instead of uh, female. But uh, a truly remarkable woman, and, and on the issue of, of fish intelligence, she told the New York Times over here in the U.S., I never eat anyone I know personally. I wouldn't deliberately eat a grouper any more than I'd eat a cocker spaniel. Fish are so good-natured. They're so curious. You know, fish are sensitive. They have personalities. They hurt when they're wounded. And in the Someone Not Something pages at Farm Sanctuary, uh, there is also a section on fish capacities. Um, and how fish can learn to escape nets. Uh, fish recognize other fish for up to two years, which is better than I can do um, with other human beings. Uh, that they're they're basically you know individuals with the full range of capacities of land-based animals, uh, but oftentimes we don't uh, we don't empathize the, with them to the same degree because they do their thing underwater. Uh, just to just to say uh, briefly that although free-range animal products are oftentimes less egregiously cruel, they're still pretty hideous. Free-range, a short documentary, which you can watch online, there's actually a remarkable amount um, online of people doing chicken slaughter in so-called, you know, humane on-farm slaughter. 
And the thing to recognize about this um, is first that the animals are fully conscious when their throats are slit open. Second, that it takes a chicken 30 to 60 seconds to bleed out after her throat is, is slit open. Um, and third, in every single one of these videos that I've watched, and I've watched probably like 15 of them, they are tossing the animals into the boiling hot water for feather removal within about 15 seconds of slitting their throat. So these so-called humane farms are literally boiling chickens alive. They are slitting their throats um, and boiling them alive. So, I mean, even if they were treating the animals well, um, chickens, it's no, no different to do that to a chicken than to do that to a cat or to do that to a dog. Um, next slide. This is uh, the homepage for whatcamebefore.com. Um, I do encourage you to um, post it on your Facebook page and send it to all your friends and family and watch it. Uh, it's a very powerful um, excoriation of the, of the meat industry. If we care about animals, previously we, we covered the environment. So if we care about the environment, that alone creates a moral imperative of veganism. If we care about the global poverty, that alone creates a moral imperative of veganism. And certainly if we care about animals, that creates a moral imperative of veganism. Uh, Percy Shelley, the poet, in explaining his veganism, his vegetarianism, he said, I want no part of anything I can't write a pleasant poem about. I like that as a concept. I want no part of anything I can't write a pleasant poem about. Um, I'm not a poet. I can't write a pleasant poem about anything. But I like that concept as an ethical construct. So we can think about that in terms of integrity. So if you are a poet, uh, you could write a pleasant poem about all aspects of your participation in getting plant foods to the table. Like there is no aspect of cultivating beans or grains or fruits or vegetables that if you are doing it personally, you have moral qualms about that. It's probably enjoyable. And, you know, if you're Shelley, if you're poetically inclined, you can write a poem about communing with nature, communing with your food, etc. Right. Um, that is not true of most aspects of getting animal foods to the table. And certainly, you know, at the, at the end of the day, just the slaughter, um, impossible to write a pleasant poem about slaughtering animals' throats open. Um, or put another way, probably, you know, most of you are vegetarian or vegan, but even in a room full of meat eaters, you will not get many people who would want to spend an afternoon slicing animals' throats open, Right. Um, not a lot of people want to castrate animals without pain relief, want to cram chickens into the conditions that we saw earlier, want to work on a fishing vessel, pulling these animals, you know, out of the depths and slicing them open. Like all aspects of getting animal-based foods to the table create some moral qualms. And so I think the question we have to ask ourselves is why are we paying people in this sort of mercenary relationship to do something to animals that we are morally opposed to. In most aspects of our lives, you know, we're not entering into these relationships where things are happening because of our actions that we find morally problematic. And that's true for the environmental argument, the global poverty argument, and the cruelty argument. You know, every time we eat, choose to eat animal products, we're wasting vast quantities of food. We're not doing it personally. Um, but we're still responsible. We're driving up the price of food and we're causing animals to be treated in ways that you know, we don't want to do it. Um, most people don't want to see it. 
They probably don't even want to think about it. And yet that's what they're paying people to do to animals. And where is the basic integrity? Where is the morality in that? So if we care about animals, also vegan. Next slide. But what's in it for us? You know, I, I adopted a vegan diet in 1987. I did it for environmental and global poverty reasons. Then I got the animal argument um, as well. But one thing that I found when I adopted a vegan diet was I lost a little bit of weight that I didn't uh, even feel like I had to lose. Um, I'm a cross-country runner. My 10K time, um, I got precipitously faster. I'd been running for years, and I dropped um, you know, probably 35 seconds off my 10K time. I had plateaued for quite a while. Um, and it had to do with working with my physiology rather than against my physiology. Um, so two slides forward, please. Uh, you should be looking at a, a chart that you can't read. Are you looking at a chart that you can't read? Excellent. This chart comes from a presentation by a medical doctor named Dr. Milton Mills. And the name of the presentation that accompanies this chart is a comparative anatomy of eating. And what you see at the top of the chart is, well, what you can't read, but what's there, trust me, is herbivore, herbivore, carnivore, omnivore, and human. And then along the uh, vertical axis is about 15 aspects of animal physiology. And what you find on the basis of this chart is that in every single, um, all of these aspects of animal physiology, human beings compare to the herbivores, the plant eaters, not the con carnivores and not the omnivores. So as just a few examples, our bone teeth density um, if we were designed to eat animal products, so all omnivores and carnivores have a bone teeth density that's about five times greater than ours so that they can crunch through the bones of their prey. Um, all natural carnivores and omnivores have about 10 times the hydrochloric acid in their stomachs than we do so that they can eat raw flesh. So, um, and the list, they have uh, very short digestive tracts to get the rotting flesh in and out very, very quickly. And the list goes on and on. If you, if you pull it, it's very easy to Google comparative anatomy of eating. And this chart and the full explanation will pop right up. Um, but this also makes intuitive sense. Is there anybody in the audience who, if you're driving down the road and you see a dead animal on the side of the road, like probably most of you in the audience, you think, oh, you know, how sad that animal got hit by a car. Um, probably most people in society either think that, um, or they think gross, you know, animal on the side of the dead animal on the side of the road. Um, very few human beings see a dead animal on the side of the road and they go, mm, I'm going to eat that. Right. That's not a common reaction. Um, and that's because our bodies are programmed to say, if you eat that raw carcass, the bacteria is likely to kill you. Um, so we learned, however long ago, um, you know, we're the only we're the only species that eats any significant amount of meat that has to cook it so that the so that the flesh, you know, the bacteria on the flesh doesn't kill us. Uh, physiologically, we are not designed to be eating animal products. And that is uh, especially clear from all of the clinical and the epidemiological research that's been done. The American Dietetic Association in the United States looked at all of the research that's been done comparing vegetarians and vegans to people who include animal products in their diets. And they found on the basis of literally all the research that exists um, that they were comfortable saying that vegetarians have lower rates of heart disease, diabetes, blood pressure, cancer, and obesity than meat eaters. 
Vegetarians and vegan diets are appropriate for all life stages, including infancy and pregnancy, and vegetarian diets have health benefits in both the prevention and the treatment of certain diseases. That, that's pretty revolutionary, actually, the, the treatment of certain diseases especially. And one of the diseases that vegetarian and vegan diets have been shown to be able to treat, to actually reverse, is heart disease. Highly recommend this movie, um, Forks Over Knives, as well as the two books whose authors it chronicles. Um, Prevent and Reverse Heart Disease is probably the most remarkable pro-vegan health book that exists. Um, Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn, the author of Prevent and Reverse Heart Disease, gives example after example after example of people who had advanced staged heart disease. And often, in many cases, their physicians had told them to go home to die. Um, and he had 100% success, not just arresting the progression of their atherosclerosis, but actually reversing it. So up until 25 or 30 years ago, it was assumed that if you didn't die from something else, you know, eventually heart disease would get you. And what Dean Ornish first and then Caldwell Esselstyn second have proved is that the number one killer in Australia and the United States and Europe, heart disease, um, doesn't have to kill, well, the clogged artery version of it, which is more than 95% of it, doesn't have to kill anybody. And that's what he talks about in Prevent and Reverse Heart Disease. And that's what um, one of the two physicians that Forks Over Knives chronicles. The China study uh, does a very powerful job from an epidemiological standpoint of linking animal protein to cancer. Also very, very powerful, but uh, the sort of direct evidence is a, a little less arresting. Kim Williams is the president of the American College of Cardiologists. One of his physicians gave him the Prevent and Reverse Heart Disease book, um, he read it, and he says, uh, I changed that day to a cholesterol-free diet using meat substitutes commonly available in stores and restaurants for protein. Within six weeks, my LDL cholesterol was down to 90. Wouldn't it be a laudable goal of the American College of Cardiology to put ourselves out of business? Uh, yes, I think it would be a laudable goal. Uh, the big dog himself, Bill Clinton, um, adopted a low-fat, almost completely vegan diet. He says, uh, and it was also on the basis of uh, Esselstyn's um, and uh, T. Colin Campbell's work. He says, I decided to pick a diet I thought would maximize my chances of long-term survival. Um, it's not just physical health. It's also spiritual health. There's an awful lot of happiness uh, that comes with aligning your diet and your ethics. As Gandhi said, happiness is when what you think, what you say, and what you do are in harmony. So that's basically veganism in a nutshell. For three ethical imperatives, as well as the what's in it for me, um, I'm going on the assumption that most of you are, are probably um, already vegetarian or vegan if you're at an animal rights conference. So I want to chat for just an extra five minutes um, about the moral imperative for those of us who are um, vegetarians and vegans to spread the vegetarian and vegan love. So starting, going to start with a, a, a poll of the audience. Can we go to the next slide? It should say, how do you say about, feel about being veg? Is that the slide you see? So we're going to have, uh, we're going to do a, a gradation in response to this poll. And if you're not vegetarian or, or vegan, you know, you don't need to participate, but we're going to have, uh, we're going to build and we're going to have five categories about how you feel about being vegetarian or vegan. Um, so we're going to go from first, um, do you feel really bad about being vegetarian or vegan? If so, raise your hand. You know, you're vegetarian or vegan, but it sucks. 
No. Okay. Good. Nobody. Nobody is. Uh, nobody is suffering horribly for the animals. That's that's good to see. Um, kind of bad. You feel you know kind of miserable all the time, but you know not horribly bad. But you're doing it. It's for the animals. Anybody feel kind of bad? No. That's good. How about neutral? No, not neutral. Okay. We have two gradations of good. Um, so who feels pretty awesome? Pretty awesome is the 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 penultimate option. For the vegetarians and vegans, there are a couple of people who feel pretty awesome, um, and who feels totally flipping awesome about being vegetarian or vegan? Yeah, of course we do, because veganism feels totally flipping awesome. Um, and the reason for that, I don't have to tell you. You're choosing compassion over cruelty. You're choosing mercy over misery. You're living your values. You're comforting the afflicted. You're afflicting the comfortable. You know, it's, it's awesome to live our values every single time we sit down to eat, right? You are saving animals with your diet, but you have the power with every single interaction you have with anybody to double your entire lifetime impact. I mean, think about that. You have one conversation with somebody who's not vegetarian or vegan. In that moment, you can double your lifetime impact. So you're saving, you know, probably 100 plus animals every single year by being vegetarian or vegan. You have one conversation with somebody, you hand somebody a leaflet, um, you have a bumper sticker on the back of your laptop and you're in the coffee shop and somebody asks about it. You know, even if people decrease their animal product consumption, you're saving massive numbers of animals. So everybody in this room, if you're like walking down the street and somebody is beating a dog, Every single person in this room intervenes and you know stops the person from beating that dog. We have that sort of an option every single day by how we lead our lives and the degree to which we prioritize our activism. So my challenge and my you know hope and my plea um, is that if you are currently not active with your local animal rights group, you become active with your local animal rights group. My wife and I um, sponsor forty stands around Washington, D.C., and every week we put in about a 1,000 new vegetarian vegan starter kits in the stands. Um, she calls it leafleting for old people because it's, you know, sort of passive. We drive around to the city with these, bo- you know, with boxes of vegan starter kits in the trunk and restock the stands all over the city. Um, and uh, everybody who, who picks up one of these vegetarian starter kits is actually already interested. So leafleting is a phenomenal thing to do like passing out leaflets about vegetarianism or vegan, veganism, a lot of those people will read the leaflet and either decrease their animal product consumption or go completely vegetarian. But if you spend time in a particular coffee shop or a particular bookstore or you're a student and you have a student union, um, talking to the proprietor of these, these places or you go to the, the library, um, talking to the people who run these places and saying, hey, can I you know, put a stack of literature um, here and keep it stocked? Um, could save massive numbers of animals, and you feel totally flipping awesome for being vegan or vegetarian, um, you can share that love with other people and save exponentially more animals. The last thing that I want to reflect on is the fact that there is a photo of this. So Socrates said the unexamined life is not worth living 2,500 years ago. And for more than 2,300 years after that, societies continued you know, some of us to hold others of us as slaves. Um, For more than 2,300 years, none of the current Western democracies granted women the right to vote. And um, we have done a 180 
in our ethical understanding of how human beings should be interacting with one another in a historical finger snap. You know, 200 years in the overall scheme of human history, it's that, right? And nevertheless, we now all recognize that, you know, women are co-equal partners um, in business and government, that obviously it's not acceptable for human beings to hold other human beings as slaves, that children are not the property of their parents. You know, 150 years ago, there were no laws against child abuse in any Western democracies. Um, we have, in a historical finger snap, radically changed the way that we interact with one another. But looking back 150 or 200 years and saying, what were our great-great-great-grandparents doing that was morally reprehensible? That's not the challenge. You know, that's easy. The challenge is to say, what's happening right now that in 50 or 100 or 150 years, people are going to look back on with the same sort of moral uh, disdain that we reserve for these past atrocities. I'm absolutely convinced that the animal rights movement is the abolition movement. It's the suffrage movement. It's the social justice movement of our age. Um, and I'm delighted that all of you seem to agree since you're at an animal rights conference. Um, and I thank you very much for inviting me to be here uh, participating with you. Um, it's, a, it's a real honor um, and I'm humbled to be here. And I thank you for being the vanguard of social justice and the vanguard of uh, justice for all beings. Thank you. You've just been listening to Bruce Frederick's presentation at the recent Australian Animal Activist Forum. Bruce Frederick is the Executive Director of the Good Food Institute. He has also previously served as a Director of Policy and Advocacy at Farm Sanctuary and as Vice President for Campaigns at PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. He is a regular contributor to the Huffington Post, so it is well worth looking up his articles that he's written. They, you can just Google him and they give you a whole list of the articles that he has contributed to the Huffington Post. The Animal Activist Forum is an annual event and next year it will be held in Queensland in October sometime, sometime around then. Thank you for tuning in to 3CR's animal advocacy program, Freedom of Species, again this week. We will be back, but before we go today, we do have some community announcements. The Animal Justice Party's main fundraiser for 2015 is the Concert for the Animals on Saturday the 28th of November at the Box Hill Community Arts Centre. Join us for an evening of song and laughter as an array of Australia's most talented opera, stage, screen, theatre and cabaret performers join forces to bring us a night of great music. Hosted by John O'May, the Concert for the Animals brings together such leading lights of Australian entertainment as Deborah Byrne, Bernadette Robinson, Suzanne Johnston, Judy Canelli, and Jonathan Welch. Visit the concert website at concertfortheanimals.org for further information and to purchase tickets, which start at $55 for concession holders. We hope to see you on Saturday the 28th of November at 7.30pm for the Animal Justice Party's major fundraiser, Concert for the Animals, at the Box Hill Community Arts Centre. To keep up to date with the events the Animal Justice Party is hosting, please go to ajpvic.org.
www.ministries.org.au and click on the events tab. You can also keep up to date by visiting the Animal Justice Party Victoria Facebook page and subscribing to receive future event notifications. Also coming up this week, and if you're a regular 3CR listener, you would be well aware that on Friday we have the People's Climate March all around Australia. In early December, the world leaders will be attending the United Nations Climate Summit in Paris, and this is still going ahead despite the terrorist attacks, recent terrorist attacks in Paris. A safe climate future is in their hands. Marches are being organised to demand legally binding and universal agreement on climate from all the nations in the world. So you can be part of this worldwide action by taking it to the streets and being part of the People's Climate March. In Melbourne, the details are that it's going to be on Friday the 27th of November, 5.30pm, meeting at the State Library of Victoria and listening to the speeches there and then going on the march. If you are from another state in Australia, you can visit their website and register to attend another march. You can join the Animal Justice Party or Animal Liberation Victoria at the march. We will be there. Please wear your AJP or ALV T-shirt. We'll be distributing placards and banners there. Where the People Climate March has decided to focus purely on a transition from fossil fuels to 100% clean energy, AJP and ALV believe the safe climate will only be achieved if we focus on an end to not only fossil fuels but livestock agriculture, one of the most devastating single entities on this planet. It was noted in a recent petition, any global policy that claims to address climate change without addressing the catastrophic impact of animal agriculture is neither honest or effective. There's a lot of science to support this. Please visit the Facebook pages of AJP or ALV and you'll get more details about the march but also links to the science behind these claims. It is well supported that animal agriculture is a major driver of climate change. So we need to be loud and proud, take it to the streets. Again, the detail for the Melbourne March is Friday the 27th of November, 5.30pm, State Library of Victoria. Wear your AJP T-shirt or your hoodie, wear your ALV T-shirt. You can pick up your banners um, near the State Library, hopefully at the RMIT La Trobe Street entrance and also to really send it home that animal agriculture needs to be addressed, feel free to wear a farmed animal onesies. We need people to pay attention to this issue. So that's it for today. Uh, You can contact the program, info at freedomofspecies.org. We have Twitter, we've got Facebook, we've also got a website with podcasts. This is Shock Octopus with Country Love. Burn your name, now country love You won't need it here and anyway It's all we've got Leave your shoes off at the door They walk much too far to give you more Or want to at all
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.